you are in for a treat because support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane. And one of the things that I love the most about Jenny Kane is how seamlessly all of their staples go together. Their iconic styles truly, truly make getting dressed so easy. Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, so think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off. Now, if you love sweaters, Jenny Kane has an unrivaled selection that will become your new obsession. They are known for their super luxe yet lightweight sweaters, and they do cashmere pretty much better than anyone. My Jenny Kane Everyday Sweater is hands down one of my favorite and most versatile sweaters that I own. First off, it is so super soft and cozy, I feel like I am getting a hug every time I wear it. And its wool cashmere blend makes it a great option from fall through spring. For those cooler summer evenings, Jenny Kane also has a great selection of cotton and linen sweaters. And if that wasn't enough, they also have an incredible rewards program where you can earn up to 10% back with every purchase. Find your new staples at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com. So JennyKane.com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. I'm a huge fan of preparation and prevention, and one of the most impactful and immediate ways to influence maternal and infant health is through nourishing nutrition. But honestly, when was the last time any of your providers had a meaningful conversation with you about eating habits and prenatal supplements? Prioritizing nutrition can truly change perinatal health for the better, which is why when talking about prenatal supplements, I'm proud to partner with Needed. They've redesigned the prenatal vitamin from the ground up based on the latest clinical research and in-practice experience of testing thousands of pregnant people's nutrient levels to know what they actually needed, not just to meet some bare minimum needs. And what I always tell my clients is that even though they're called prenatal vitamins, you should continue to take supplements during postpartum and beyond because your body still needs so much nutritional support. I love that at Needed, they understand this and have different plans to make it easy for you to meet your optimal micronutrient, microbiome, and protein needs. They have a fertility support plan, a plan for each of the four trimesters, and a lactation support plan, just to name a few. Needed is recommended by nearly 4,000 doctors, midwives, doulas, and nutritionists, and is proud to be the first perinatal nutrition company that's B Corp and climate neutral certified. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada and today we're going to be talking about shoulder dystocia. If you had or have a baby who is suspected to be big, your provider may have talked about the risk of the shoulders getting stuck and maybe suggested an earlier induction or even a cesarean. But how often do the shoulders get stuck? What are the risks? Does it happen more to big babies? Are there ways to prevent it? And what can you and your provider do if shoulder dystocia does happen? The ever-amazing Rachel Reed has answers. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. Thank you, as always, for all the love you give the show, your feedback, your messages, your requests, your ratings, your reviews. In short, all your support. 
All right, so today's episode is on shoulder dystocia, which is basically the event of the shoulders getting stuck in the pelvis, usually after the head comes out. It's one of those things that more often than not is brought up by care providers in a very scary way, with the risks being amplified. I find that more often than not, the conversations can evoke anxiety, insecurity, and even guilt in the expectant parents, which can often lead to them making decisions based on those feelings rather than the information or the evidence or their risks and using, you know, the BRAIN acronym. So even though shoulder dystocia is a rare event, this is a sucky and often unnecessary mind space to inhabit during the last few weeks of pregnancy that like anxiety filled, is it going to happen? Is my baby too big? Is it going to, shoulders going to get stuck? It's just, it's a lot. Lately, I find that this conversation is coming up way too often not to do a show about it. So here we are. And to guide us through all the data, risks, and options, I have with me today the wonderful Rachel Reed, who is a senior lecturer and discipline leader in midwifery at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. And she's also the author of the amazing blog, Midwife Thinking. And if you haven't already, you should include Midwife Thinking in your reading list. Rachel also published the great book in 2018 titled Why Inductions Matter, and the book is very comprehensive, which means it's a quick read. I've linked both her blog and the book in the show notes, so do check those out. All right, shoulder dystocia then. Here we go. Hello, Rachel. It is such a fun delight to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be back. (laughs) Yeah, and... um, I do want to make sure listeners know about your blog, which is called Midwife Thinking, because it is, I want to thank you for that blog, because it is such a great fountain of information and a solid research. I It, it always comes up on my feed whenever I search for birthy stuff, and I'm reminded of what amazing work you do. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And I actually started it mostly for myself because I like to have kind of get things into an order so that I can understand them um, and to use with with women that are cared for and with students. So, yeah, I was quite surprised that it took off in the way that it did. But that's good. Yeah, it's you do good work. And so aside from the blog, tell us a little bit more of what you do, a little bit more about yourself and how you got into this birth world. Oh, okay. So I started as a midwife in 2001 in the UK, which is kind of where I'm from, and worked clinically in hospitals, in the community, um, and in the UK, home birth part of the system, and then moved to Australia and worked clinically as a midwife in Australia, and whilst also studying my PhD, and then kind of got into teaching and lecturing and that's where I am now. I did independent midwifery in Australia so that I could carry on doing continuity of care and home birth, which is not part of the system widespread in Australia. It is in some areas. And now I am a um, senior lecturer in midwifery teaching students and speaking at conferences and writing and researching um, which is great because it's all the things that I'm interested in. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah true birth, birth nerd. And I say <laughs> that in the nicest way because I consider myself one too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So this topic, I was so happy when you said yes to talking about shoulder dystocia and big babies. And because those things are, for some reason, I think... They, they pop up in seasons, right? Sometimes you mm. hear all about big babies, big babies, big babies, and then it goes away and then it's all about, you know, low amniotic fluid. And mm. then that sort of dies down and then it's back to big babies. So I I'm, I feel like I'm in a season of big babies right now. <laughs> and <laughs> there is so much fear around it. And so it, it, it can be scary depending on how you talk about it. So Let's break it down. Let's have some facts here of how things happen to help new and expectant parents have an informed, make an informed decision as to which way they're going to go. So anyway, big babies. Now, let's start with shoulder dystocia. What is shoulder dystocia? Oh, well, according to the textbook, shoulder dystocia is... um, the baby's shoulders become stuck and impacted, so the bony 
part of the baby's shoulders becomes stuck and impacted on the bony part of the woman's pelvis. That's that's it in a nutshell, um, which is maybe helpful or maybe not helpful for practitioners and, and women, um, but that's the definition. Well, and I think when people hear the word stuck, mm. that already has some undertones to it right um and when i was reading your your post on shoulder dystocia something that i found interesting was that it doesn't exclusively relate to the baby's shoulder getting stuck on the mom's pubic bone after you know as the head is coming out which is frankly before i i went and, and was reading deep deeper I did think that that was the only way because that's kind of the one that everybody focuses on. Yes, and there's, and I think that's largely because there's such a diverse population of care providers that often managing complications are kept very simplistic because it's just too, too difficult for lots of people to be doing lots of different things. So the focus is on that one type of shoulder dystocia and all of the management and drills are based on that scenario, which doesn't matter because in the end it will release a shoulder even if it's not stuck there. But, it, you know, it's it might be a waste of time for a little bit if that's not where the shoulders are stuck. Um, and it's it's probably the most common form, but really the babies, babies don't come out exactly the same way um, like textbooks say they do. So the baby's shoulder can get stuck anywhere within the, the pelvis you know um depending on on what's happened for that baby and within that pelvis so it's just a little mm -hmm. bit more complex but in order to keep it simple that's the that's the definition if you do a search on youtube for the kind of medical and i've got a link i've got one on my blog of how it happens then it's always the baby's shoulder getting stuck behind the pubic bone mm -hmm. So that is shoulder dystocia. So then what is consider considered a big baby? Depends who you're asking. <laughs> and, it depends, uh -huh. and it depends in, in proportion to the mother, I guess. But by definition, the kind of medical term is macrosomia for big babies. And that's a baby. So I think in kilos in, Aust in Australia. Um, so that's four kilos. But I know that um, other parts of the world still use the pounds and ounces. So that's eight pounds, 13 ounce would be considered a big baby, which is interesting because, you know, if I look at the, the births I've attended over the last few years, most babies are around four kilos or bigger. Right. So I, I love that you also, when initially answering the question, you said, and it also depends on the mothers, like big for who? Mm. Is it a teeny, you know, what's the space around that baby? Is it sort of more of a compact shape or is there proportionate shape and, and long torso and such? Um, where yeah, this number of four, four kilos, eight pounds, 13 ounces really doesn't address that. No, and also, you know, I mean, for example, I had a I had a baby myself that was six pound fifteen ounces, which is normal. But I think she was actually growth restricted for me. I'm very tall. I've got a long body. I previously had a bigger baby, and babies generally get bigger. But that wasn't she wasn't classified as growth restricted because she was a normal weight. So we need to look at a lot more than, you know, just the weight of the baby. And we've got now healthy women birthing babies their smoking has got gone down significantly um, and that impacts on the size of a baby so I think prior to smoking rates going down our ideas about what a normal size baby was was influenced by a much higher rate of small babies um, yeah that makes total sense. I never even considered the smoking thing. Um, are these numbers that we usually manage, the four kilos, eight pounds, 13 ounces, have they taken, a, are they before or after the sort of lessening of smoking in general for pregnant people? I'm not Do sure you know? when those figures came out. Um, I know that certainly as, as a midwife, I haven't seen a lot of excitement around big babies until the last decade, which would correspond with when babies are getting babies are getting bigger that's for sure babies are definitely getting bigger and um, but our the you know the demographics of the women birthing are getting di are different 
in particular smoking. We've got um, well-nourished women who grow bigger babies. We've got bigger women who grow bigger babies. Um, so there's a lot of other things going on. So I think focusing on the weight of an individual baby is not helpful without putting that in the context of the woman. Um, and, you know, what is normal for her because of over four kilo baby is probably normal for a lot of women. And, and certainly I've noticed with the demographic of women that I've cared for in Australia in, in home birth is a very select group, I guess, compared to the UK where I cared, cared for women from very low socioeconomic groups who, you know, weren't as well nourished, weren't as, as healthy um, often smoked, lots of smoking, and their babies were generally fairly small. And then caring for a group of women in Australia who are well-resourced, who, you know, I guess have the privilege of being able to pay for independent midwifery, their babies were big, mostly four kilos and over. Um, you know, so it's, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now, so in terms of big baby and shoulder dystocia, how do those two relate or do they? Okay, well, they do. Um, if you look statistically, so for a baby who's eight pounds, eight ounces or smaller, then 1% of that group of babies will have a shoulder dystocia. Once you're getting into babies who are eight pounds, eight ounces and over, um, you've got 5% and it kind of goes up as the baby gets bigger. So there is definitely an increase in shoulder dystocia as the baby gets bigger. However, we've got to remember that that research includes women who had abnormal blood glucose levels in pregnancy. And there's a difference between a baby that's just big, genetically big, um, and a baby who has had high blood glucose levels from their mother that has then increased their own insulin which then actually makes them lay down fat. So they're not bigger skeleton-wise, but they lay down fat across their shoulders and at the upper part of the body. So they are more likely, you know, if, you, if you've had abnormal blood sugars in pregnancy, your baby is more likely to be bigger in a shape that is more likely to get stuck in on the way out. So we've just got to be careful. And so, yeah. go ahead. So I was, we've just got to be careful about saying, oh, you know, if babies this this size are more likely to get you know stuck it it again depends on why are they that size you know what else is happening yeah and also let's go to the first point which is how that size is even being determined mm. <laughs> how are we measure how do we know the size of this baby so we can measure babies after they're born that's the only accurate measurement so the studies that look at shoulder dystocia percentages are looking at what was the weight of the baby after the baby was born. Because beforehand, you know, you've got a 50% chance of being inaccurate just by palpation and measurement. And even an ultra... What was that percentage again? 50%. 50, 50. okay. If you're just palpate, you know, if somebody's just got a tape measure and using their hands. Um, and then when you get to ultrasound, which is kind of the... the best available, and I'm saying that in, in quotes, um, you've still got a huge margin of error, so 15% either side of the weight that is estimated. So, you know, for example, um, the example I give in my book is you could have a, a baby that's estimated to be eight pound, for example. So that baby could be anything from like six pound 13 to nine pound three ounces. If I've got them. That's a huge range. <laughs> right. So what we're saying is you can't actually tell how big a baby is before the baby's born. <laughs> and yet, where does this then, this pressure of like your baby's measuring big, your baby's measuring big, baby's going to keep getting big. Let's have an induction at 39 weeks, for example, because I'm, I'm starting to hear that a lot more. And then it's linked to you know, the risks are brought up of risk of shoulder dystocia and risk of having, you know, perineal tears and, the, and big damage in, in the perineum and broken clavicles for the baby and, uh, you know, oxygen deprivation that creates brain damage and all these really, really scary things. Um, 
based on your baby's seems big? Yeah, everyone's terrified. I mean, as women will will tell you when they're pregnant, you know, women find in the supermarkets, people come up and say, oh, you're really big. We're slightly obsessed with big babies. And I think ultrasonographers, even when they're not doing size ultrasounds, feel the need to say something. And often the thing that people say is about the size of the baby. Um, and then we have care providers that reinforce that. And and there's just a lot of fear. And I'm not sure where that comes from, because if we're talking about then inducing women because we think they have a big baby, which we don't know until the baby's out, so a suspected big baby, then yes, it will reduce the chance of shoulder dystocia because you're inducing the baby will be smaller. You know, if you induce a woman at 39 weeks, then her baby will be smaller. So we're overall reducing the chance of shoulder dystocia from 6.8% to 4.1%. But what we're actually doing is increasing perineal tearing and increasing babies being treated by jaundice. So, yes, shoulder dystocia can be reduced by inducing, but a whole lot of other things click into place once you've gone down that path. So to be fair to women, we should be saying, okay, we can induce you. And you know, that's why I wrote the book about induction. Is It's not just, a, it's an entirely different experience with an entirely different set of options and risks within that. Um, and doing that will increase the risk of some things and decrease the risk of other things. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that, you know, babies cook differently for each person. So if we look at the average due date or the average birth date for first time moms, we find our research finds that it's closer to 40 weeks, six days Mm -hmm. or almost 41 weeks. Mm -hmm. And it's I think it's 43 for for second and and more time moms, but um, 40. So it's almost 41 weeks. Mm. And having a baby be induced aside from how different the experience is because you're you're not you're trying to force labor you're not really in labor until your body takes over this 39 weeks those two weeks there's a lot of forming that can happen for the baby so it's not you might reduce the shoulder dystocia but are you causing any problems any respiratory problems because the lungs you know are tend to be the last thing to form and such and also really we've got to we've got to bear in mind that the biggest risk factor is the suspicion of the size of the baby not the size of the baby so when researchers looked at what the outcomes are for suspected big babies not actual big babies so this is a group of women who were because i think it's in america two out of three women are told their babies are big so and in that group of women who were told, this is a piece of research that looked at a group of women, two out of three of them were told their babies were big. And out of that group, the average weight for the baby was £7.13. So this was not a group of women with big babies. Um, and another study looked at what happens when, when a woman is suspected of carrying a big baby. And what they found was that her chance of induction and cesarean increases um, by three threefold. And that her chance of complications, and by that they looked at severe perineal tearing and hemorrhage, was four times a woman who was not suspected of having a big baby. So there is something going on with the way that care providers look after women when they think there's a big baby, even when there's not a big baby. So the risks associated with big babies are mostly about what the perception of a big baby does to the people who are looking after you. Mm. And I've actually seen that in practice because I've seen, you know, 10 pound babies that just surprise everybody and nobody thought that baby was that size. It's like, oh, no problem at all. And I've seen suspected big babies of, you know, end up being seven pounds. And mm. I'm sure you have. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're familiar with this too. I can yeah. remember looking at um, a woman who, is, who had been told her baby was huge and she was, it was her first baby. She was very anxious. This is in hospital. She was very anxious about it. And everybody was then all, you know, on alert. Make sure that you get the obstetrician when the baby's going to be born because, you know, this baby's going to get stuck because it's so big, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I was caring for this woman who was, you know, most of the care was around trying to de-escalate all the fear that was coming you know, from around her, not 
you know, and once she got into labor, labor is fantastic at that. It kind of just <laughs> knocks out that <laughs> cortex and women kind of get on with it. Um, and she actually started pushing her baby out in the toilet, perfect place to push your baby out in. So we carried on. And I don't know how, because I certainly didn't press any buttons or anything, but as this baby was crowning and coming out, I saw an obstetrician arrive, look into the toilet door and was absolutely furious and saying, we need to get this woman on the bed. And I said, well, the baby's coming out and baby came out and it, surprise, surprise, was about seven pounds, you know, it wasn't huge um, and all was good. And then afterwards, I got absolutely hauled over the coals about, you know, how, you know, having that baby in that environment in the toilet and couldn't have managed, you know, shoulder dystocia, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, hang on, hang on. The baby wasn't big. And that would probably be a really good place to, for the baby to not get stuck if it had been big. But, you know, the perception mm. of her care, the perceptions of her and her birth were, you know, we needed to have her on the bed in a position that we could do things to her because the baby was going to get stuck. Right. Did you know that Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths per day? That is so many breaths. Now, according to the EPA, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases, up to a hundred times more polluted. So then what is the solution for cleaner indoor air? For me, it's Air Doctor and their line of superb air purifiers that have captured the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and many more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes all kinds of pollutants, such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that can make you sick. Plus, Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BIRTHFALL to receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And exclusive to podcast listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O. Dot com so airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code birthful hey mighty one as you approach the journey into birth and parenthood now is the perfect time to make your home a serene and nurturing haven with the help of home threads at home threads you'll discover furniture designed for comfort and functionality from cozy nursing chairs to versatile baby friendly storage as well as a super wide array of options to spruce up any room in your house home threads can help make your home the perfect nest for your growing family and at a great value I so appreciate that wide range of styles that you can find at Home Threads. For example, I was ecstatic when I found a pair of truly stunning mid-century curved walnut dining chairs that somehow perfectly match my home office chair. I mean, what are the chances? These chairs are not only gorgeous in their light green upholstery, but also super sturdy and just so comfortable. I simply adore them. Explore the amazing finds Home Threads has waiting for you. Go to homethreads.com slash birthful and get a code for 15% off your first order. Do make sure to go to our unique URL of homethreads.com slash birthful to get your discount. Home Threads, love where you live. There's so much to this topic, so many intricacies that it's like we could spend hours, days talking about this, write books about it, which you have when related to induction. Um, but does shoulder, like how often does shoulder dystocia occur? Mm, okay, so if, I actually looked at a, a span of all of the research and the incidence is quoted in research and it's from 0.2% to 14%. 
depending depending on which research you look at. And that's probably down to definitions and what people call shoulder dystocia, how they report shoulder dystocia. So, you know, my hunch is that if it's a large baby, that it's reported more often. And you'll often hear midwives talk about sticky shoulders, you know, so some midwives will refer to a baby who needed a little bit of traction to come out as a sticky shoulders baby. Other ones won't even mention or notice it and other ones would consider that a shoulder dystocia so it's the actual precise definition you know rates are largely unknown because of the different interpretations of what exactly shoulder dystocia is Mm. and one thing that i found really interesting in while researching for this as well is that although big babies are at a higher risk for shoulder dystocia at least half of all cases of shoulder dystocia happen in smaller or normal-sized babies. Yes, because there's more smaller babies proportionately being born, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But yeah. So, so the absolute numbers, right, yeah. are about the same. So as a care provider, you're more, you, will be, you will be attending more births with normal-sized babies where there's shoulder dystocia than big babies. So if we, if shoulder dystocia happens, you know, in, in, a, in not absolute numbers, just as much for, for regular sized babies than for big babies. So in terms of actually being a provider that has to encounter that situation, it's really about the same. And we're not good at determining the baby size ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Why is it that this whole bit about, you know, the, the, the oh consideration of it's really bad because shoulder dystocia could happen and you really should be induced or something happens and having that fear placed in mom's head doesn't happen or in the birthing person's head doesn't happen to all to everybody who's giving birth since it really like if you look at the numbers it it's it, it is on the offset not an onset not knowing the size of your baby it's kind of the same risk for everybody we know that afterwards if we measure the babies then we see oh yes bigger babies tend to have higher risk but we can't tell really the size of that baby ahead of time no and that's that's because the way our concepts of risk are cultural and certainly within in in, in organizations they have a particularly um a, a way of looking at risk that is maybe not necessarily how an individual woman would look at her own risk. Um, I mean, for example, with, with VBAC, as, as you know, there's, there's all this drama around the, the risk of uterine rupture, which is, you know, less than 1%, 0.5%. And yet for those women, there's, they're actually more likely to have a shoulder dystocia, but nobody talks to them about that. The focus for those women would be on the VBACs. So... The way that we talk to women about risk reflects our cultural norms and and what the priorities are, I guess, for the, the organisation. I think that's one really important thing for women. And that's why I actually wrote a section on perceptions of risk in my book, is that for women, they need to consider that the people who are talking to them and giving them numbers about risk are coming from a particular perspective and that they need to really consider what their perspective is and what's important to them and and interpret it in that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, it's hard because they're not medical providers, but they need to know the information in order to make that decision. And it's hard to figure out, like, well, is this relating to me specifically or is this more relating to the institution and policy yeah and which is a tough call and also to ask for actual numbers i think that's one strategy that can really help because you often hear people say, oh you've increased risk of or you know threefold chance of it's like so what does that mean you know what is that in terms of what's the percentage or the number if I have this intervention versus if I don't, and to, to be able to compare actual numbers rather than you know these quite scary announcements about you know fifty percent more likely. Well, if it's fifty percent of zero point five, then it's not really that high. Right. Yeah. Or it's gone from point two to point four. Mm, yeah. That doubled. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Exactly>. Doubled. <laughs> Um, 
So, okay, but let's, so all of these, this preamble, what, how, how scary is children associated? Like what, if it does happen, what, what are some risk factors? Were there ways to avoid it? Like how scary really is it? Oh, again, it depends who you ask. So it seems to be very, very scary for care providers, which is interesting because there's a lot of other things that I consider far more risky that are not feared. For example, the use of syntocinone, that medication is the biggest risk factor for a baby in labour in terms of, you know, law cases are settled out of court because it's just known. And yet care providers won't think twice about putting up, I think you call it pitocin there, pitocin infusion. And yet Mm -hmm. we'll be extremely fearful of a shoulder dystocia when the vast majority of the time the, the baby is released, even in a very medical setting where there's lots of, you know, where they work through all of their set maneuvers the babies you know 90 percent of the babies are released with the first maneuver that we do which is just positioning the woman if we're following the standard protocol so it's actually not a i mean it's a complication it's not nice as a care provider to see it it can be quite scary but it's certainly not up there with you know other things that could happen um but care providers are very nervous about it mm-hmm. and so are there ways to avoid it? Um, yes, there are ways to avoid it. <laughs> what are some ways to avoid it, Rachel? <laughs> um, well, I guess from from the um, before the baby's born, you know, anything um, that keep normal blood glucose levels, so you're not creating um, a baby who is very, very large, not kind of genetically and normally large. Um, because I can't find this read. I can remember reading it and I can't find it and I wish I could find it. There's um, research showing that women modulate and regulate the size of their babies themselves. So there's some, and we know that there's a lot going on between woman and, and baby in terms of modulating uh, epigenetics. So for example, a, a woman who is, who is carrying a, a child that's not genetically hers, you know, um, that's maybe from another woman's egg, will actually alter the epigenetics of that child. So we'll have some say in the way that that child grows and that women grow babies um, that fit their pelvises. However, if a woman has high blood glucose levels, then that can be altered because the baby's physiology is changed because of those blood glucose levels. So I guess, you know, keeping a healthy diet, um, that's pre-birth. And then in terms of birth... Anything that interferes with instinctive birth is a risk. Um, so that's quite a lot. <laughs> um, you really, for, looking at it from the other perspective, the optimal, the optimal chance of physiologically birthing a big baby, then we want an environment that supports the woman's instinct where she's not disturbed. Um, and where we're not interfering with the physiology that needs to take place for that baby to navigate through the pelvis. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about the undisturbed birth. When uh, you mentioned in your in your blog post that um, you've seen some bizarre birth positions and movements that made perfect sense once the baby emerged, and I wonder if you would share with us a couple of those scenarios that were like, oh. Being on her head made total sense because the baby was like so and so. Well, there actually is one with a woman on her head. Ah. <laughs> um, so this is a woman who's having her third baby, and she had declined scans and was labouring at home, and you know labouring in the usual way. Actually, it was quite a stoppy start labour in that it would start when her children went to bed, and then would slow down once they woke up. Um, a couple of days and then you know took off and established and then as she came to pushing she was in the bathroom and she literally put her head on the floor and her bottom in the air so she was actually upside down and we the midwives are watching this and we're looking at each other thinking this is really odd and you know because I'm a bit of a busybody inside I try not to do that on the outside I'm like that's not going to help you need to be upright blah, 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 blah. 
thought, no, no, let's let's just keep quiet. I've, I've actually learned to not say what's happening in my head a lot of the time. Um, and she was pushing. You see this baby coming up and then sliding all the way back in again because she was upside down. And then as the baby's head was born, there was a, a gush of blood, which is unusual. You know, you wouldn't expect a woman having a third baby to tear. So thinking that probably isn't that. Anyway, the baby came out and came out with the placenta um, and needed a little bit of you know stimulation, just rubbing and encouraging to start breathing. And, you know, I think that placenta was very, very close to the cervix or across the cervix and that she was taking the pressure off the placenta for that baby to be able to be born. So afterwards, that mm. made sense. <laughs> right, because she had declined scans, so you didn't know where the placenta mm. was ahead of time. No. Right. And in terms of managing a shoulder dystocia, um, while sometimes, you know, as the care provider, you do have to step in and do things, women can sort it out themselves a lot of the time if you just just wait. Um, I, I was at a big, this is a gestational diabetic mum who had, again, declined screening, didn't know she was gestational diabetic and hadn't been for her previous pregnancies. So this baby's head came out and she was at the other side of the room on all fours on her bed with her um husband was going to catch the baby so I was out of the way and this baby's head came out and immediately knew oh dear that's huge and very red and big cheeks and just quite clearly you know a big gestational diabetic baby and then the next contraction nothing happened this baby would kind of move forward and then jump back it was the shoulders were obviously not aligned well and I was just about to you know rush over and do the hero thing with the cape um and you know, mother sorted it out herself. She kind of put her leg forward and did this kind of Elvis pelvic thrust, and this baby flew out into dad's hands. Um, so that really taught me a lot about just waiting, so that you've got a little bit of time, um, and see what mom does. And you know, her she said, "Oh yeah, I felt like this baby was kind of lodged somewhere, and I just felt I needed to to shift." So I've seen that a, a few times and a, a mom shared her birth movie with me of a free birth that she had and the same thing. This baby was actually stuck for a really long time, like a good few minutes and contractions with no change. And then she eventually just moved her leg, changed the position of her pelvis and this baby came out. So, you know, women can instinctively do that. I'm not saying we should never step in and, and assist, but just to remember in the background that, that sometimes if we keep out of the way, the woman will work it out it's her body and it's her baby and she can certainly feel what's going on better than we can mm. yes it's happening inside like this thing's inside you right mm. yes yes um so because it's the baby being stuck on somewhere the baby's shoulder being stuck somewhere in on mom's pelvis then changing you, you talked about changing that she or the, the birthing person changing positions moving left lifting leg rocking thrusting pelvis style um <laughs> to change the position of the pelvis and then what is there anything else that can be done to to resolve a shoulder dystocia well when you when it's actually happening you've got kind of you either need to move the pelvis change the you know shape or position of the pelvis you need to move the baby's shoulders or change the shape and position of the baby's shoulders or you need to do both of those things at the same time and different techniques um from an external perspective do different things so that's why it's really helpful to have a for care providers to have a really holistic understanding of what might be happening and how best to, to sort things out in this particular situation. Having said that, you know, the standard approach that care providers use, the mnemonic that they work through, will actually do all of those things at some point to just work through a you know set standard. They first of all move the woman's pelvis and then they do various things. Um, so I guess in terms of you know, for, for example, if a woman's mobile and on all fours, then it's really easy to do. Um, Gail Tully's got a, a system that, that she talks about flip flop. It's really easy to get the woman just to move her leg up and change the shape of her pelvis. If a woman's had an epidural and is flat on her back, then that's going to be a lot harder to do. So you might opt for a different 
different management of that that scenario. Mm. And in terms of in terms of the care provider helping, all of the space is in the back of the pelvis. So when we talk look at the, the shape of the pelvis, then the space is all in the back. Um, and whether that's in order to get some fingers in just to rotate the baby's shoulder or or for the woman to get into the position that makes the most of that space, then it's really helpful to whatever's happening, whether it's breech or shoulder dystocia or anything, the space is in the back of the pelvis. So really safeguarding that space, making sure that that back of the pelvis is free to move. Right. And so if you mentioned epidurals, if usually with an epidural or if you're asking or, or even without an epidural, if you're doing management um, pushing stage, there tends to be the idea that women should be lying on their backs and even reclining on not completely flat, but reclining on, her ba- on their backs. Um, that then actually puts counter pressure on that tailbone in the back of the pelvis. So it can't uncurl. It can't open that space yeah so you're actually increasing the chance of shoulder distortion and making it more difficult to manage by being on the back yes yes (laughs) i just want to make sure make sure that is clearly understood i know it doesn't make any sense does it (laughs) now what about this idea i've heard many providers in midwives included um say like when and maybe it's because pushing starts too early but you know, when pushing is not not progressing and it's not progressing and it, mind you, it might be like there's a lip and I just moved it out of the way and now start pushing. That's why I'm thinking it might be too right. early to push. But in any case, pushing has begun and it's not progressing very much. And then they get this slowly guide the person to being on their back and almost really flat on their back and say, no, this is the best way for baby to you know, get that head under the pubic bone. What is that about? Oh, well, you would hope that women aren't pushing until the baby's head is under the pubic bone because that's kind of counterintuitive. The, ba- the baby needs to descend deeply enough to instigate spontaneous pushing. And actually, if you if you wait for physiological pushing to happen, it's it actually is fairly short space of time because it doesn't happen until the baby's really deep in the pelvis and then the woman feels all of that pressure and the nerves are stimulated for that really instinctive pushing to happen. So, you know, one, one don't be pushing cervical lips out of the way because the baby might still need to do things before its head comes through the cervix. And directed pushing doesn't give the baby that opportunity to wriggle and move and change in between contractions um so you're more likely to end up with shoulder distortion if you're directing women to push because you're directing them to push this baby onto the pelvis before it's had a chance to wriggle itself around so its shoulder's not going to end up on the pelvis um yeah so, so it's a lot kinda, of it is it's a forcing it to happen yeah. And it can, yeah so a lot of the things that seem to be routine practices which are actually based on fairly recent, if we look historically, fairly recent um, idea that women should be on their backs to birth babies, actually sets up the chance of a complication, a shoulder dystocia. You know, that's actually providing prime opportunity for it to happen. Um, and then we get into these weird you know, scenarios of women need to be on their backs on the bed so we can manage the complication that we're going to create by putting the woman on the bed on her back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important for listeners to then understand that if during their labor, they hear, oh, no, this is the best way to get that head under the pubic bone, that that's maybe a red flag of this is happening too soon. And how about I go pee? Mm. And how about I wait, wait until my body's pushing well yeah and i like that go pee because it's like wait you know what i want to stop and i want to go you know like Mm. get out of this bed and out of the back and like it gives them words to go like wait and then decide but it creates like it gives space basically then then sitting on the toilet and emptying the bladder actually provides more room for the baby because you've got an empty bladder and a great position for the baby to come through the pelvis (laughs) 
I yeah. love that. Do you need to pee? Like, <laughs> that's one of my doula tricks. But do you like to pee first? <laughs> toilets are fabulous places. The number of babies who are born in toilets. Uh, yeah. Somebody needs to do some research on that. <laughs> mm, right. Um, okay, so then, yeah. So getting under the pubic bone and have a lip to move out of the way. Maybe things happening too early. Now, the other thing that kind of... I don't know what to do about it. And when when we got together, doulas, and we're talking about, more about this, we're like, you know, there's been progress made in in the past, whatever, five, 10 years in terms of supporting more physiological processes and, and cords are clamped later now. And people are starting to appreciate the need for moving and using different positions. But then as soon as that head is out, there's hands on that head and there's there's like pulling on these babies. What is what is that about? And how does that affect shoulder dystocia? Well, change is very slow in the maternity services, but it does happen. You know, it's just very, very slow. You know, I think cord clamping, it, it takes a long time to undo all of these interventions that were implemented without evidence. And in order to undo them, we need lots of research and evidence to prove that it's okay to not do the thing that was implemented without evidence um, and I think that's one of the one of the things that's really not shifting much and that's the pulling babies once their heads are out I have seen a change in in places where water births implemented because it's very much hands-off so then care providers get used to not touching and seeing babies come out without them touching and I think that's the the key is that care providers are taught how to maneuver babies out. So in their training, they'll have, you know, torsos, plastic torsos of women, which go right back to the, you know, we used to have real torsos of women in the 1700s. Um, and they're maneuvering these dolls out of a plastic, you know, part of a woman, which is not really what's happening in birth. But we're taught to do particular maneuvers that require the woman on her back because you know you pull the baby's woman's on her back you pull the baby's shoulder down and then up and that's how they're taught so it becomes like a um you know making yourself a cup of tea this is just the way that you do it and that's the way you do it at every birth so to then not do it is really quite challenging and I know as a care provider myself having been taught you know once the baby's head's out you then grasp the sides of the baby's head and pull the baby out and, you know, doing water birth, we weren't doing that. And we just implemented and I thought, well, why are we doing it when baby's on land? Um, this is when I was a new new midwife. And I thought, well, I'm going to not do it on land and see what happens. And and it was really, and I had to give myself a little stage, you know, just, just don't pull for X amount of time. Okay, now when you're comfortable with that, now don't pull for this amount of time. And, that, and then in the end, you, guess what? You don't have to pull. The baby just comes out. Um, which then reinforced to me it works so then I felt safe doing it and if care providers aren't being exposed to seeing babies come out without being pulled then they pull and there's also that um, it's still it's still difficult to that space between the baby's head and the rest of the baby can be quite anxiety provoking because you you know you're going is this baby going to come out what state's the baby going to be in got a really lovely film of a um, birth that I attended. I was the, the camera person for this film and uh, for the birth and the mum's birthing this. And she's small, this woman, and this huge baby's head comes out. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, oh, this baby's going to get stuck. We need, you know, she needs to open her legs. She needs to do all these things. And, and it was quite a long time till the next contraction. And she moved her leg instinctively. And this baby rotated and found its own way out. And, you know, I could, okay. But it's actually quite difficult to watch sometimes from a care provider's perspective. And I think that they just get in and do it. And students often tell me, well, I'm, you know, if I'm at a booth, I'm told to get your hands on that baby and get the baby out. So until that becomes the norm, and I almost see a move towards doing it more. Um, in Australia, certainly there's a real backlash to the kind of hands-off booth that a lot of midwives were starting to do. I don't know how we get, unless women actually write in their birth plans, do not, you know, I, I, I do not want you to touch my baby until the entire baby's out or something that, you know, 
gives whoever their support people are, their doula, the, the power to say, look, this remember, you know, as the baby's been born, oh, remember she doesn't want you to touch the baby or she wants to be the person to touch the baby or someone she wants her partner to be the person who touches the baby first. Yeah. Well, and I was going to ask you, you know, what can parents do to try to lessen this? Because it can be, sometimes it can be rather forceful. And I'm sure that having like that early trigger to pull, especially if a baby, because they don't always rotate like you're taught at school, you know, sometimes they rotate a different way. Sometimes they don't rotate all the way and come out with the shoulders traversed. Sometimes like depending on a hand comes out for like babies, <laughs> they, treat, they do their own thing. Um, but can that pulling also then create a shoulder dystocia? Oh, yes. I mean, I haven't got any research to back this up. But if you think about the what's happening mechanically, if that baby hasn't rotated, if that baby's waiting for the next contraction in order to rotate its shoulders away from the symphysis pubis or away from the part of the pelvis that it's you know, not lined up well with, and you stop pulling, then you're actually impacting that shoulder into the pelvis. Um, and I also am convinced that a lot of the tearing that women get is from that pulling baby's shoulders downwards into their perineum. Because it's just interesting that when caring for women in hospital settings where they're primarily birthing on their back, then the tearing tends to be at the back of the vagina, just where the shoulder, and often you'll see the in, perineum intact as the baby's born, and then after the baby's been pulled out, they've got a tear at the back of their vagina, just where the shoulder would have been pulled into their tissue. Whereas when women are birthing outside of, hospital setting most of the women I attend at birth not all because they do their own thing most though end up in a forward leaning upright forward leaning position at the point that the baby's head's coming out so any tearing seems to be or labial grazes are the most common you know the the pressure of the baby goes up a different way so I think that this this pulling on baby's heads is pull, impacting shoulders into pelvises and you know causing trauma to women's Mm. And then I think it's so important for people to really listen to this and know how much power they can have during that time with their own movement and with their own instinctual you know shaking the leg or doing whatever it is like to actually listen to what their bodies are telling them because they can by tuning in they can actually lessen damage yeah both both to themselves and baby Mm. generally generally speaking instinctive physiological birth results in the the best outcomes for mother and baby that's kind of general actually no physiological birth because I, i tend to not say natural birth because natural birth includes pathology you know a pathology is natural shoulder dystocia is natural physiology is a is an organism functioning as it, you know, in the optimal healthy way, which is really, women's bodies have evolved to do do this and can do it without intervention and without a pathology occurring most of the time. And yet we have a scenario where most women don't experience that because the things we do to them are causing the complications and the pathology that then we need to manage. And just to ensure that women have that sense that... I can do this. I have the instincts and everything that I need to birth this baby. And I also will know if I need help and if things are becoming complicated and I can access that help. But I don't need Mm -hmm. it unless that happens. Yeah. And one of the things also that was interesting to me was reading that shoulder dystocia itself is not a bad outcome. It's a bad outcome if there's an injury with it, which can be like a brachial plexus palsy, which is nerve damage right to the to the neck and and shoulder and hands can be involved in that nerve damage. Um, But it, it was so interesting to me to read the numbers that 48 to 72 percent of brachial plexus palsy, so a, a large majority of it, happen without shoulder dystocia. And yeah. it can happen during cesarean and it can um and it was completely eliminated 
in the UK, when they did a training for providers, it was a prompt, I'll link it in the show notes or, or just to the article, not to the training, <laughs> the prompt um, training, which then it kind of pointed to these, these uh, injuries were provider induced, basically, if a training for providers eliminated them. Yeah. And, which, and part of that is, you know, the pulling a baby who's not ready to be pulled. You're actually compressing those nerves in the neck and through to the shoulder when you're pulling. So the baby might not be stuck, but you pulling and compressing those nerves is going to cause the injury. Yeah. So I, that's a whole, I mean, I've have many conversations with doulas about this whole pulling thing and like, does it really need to happen? So I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you about this, even though it's kind of related to children's association, big babies, but more universal than that. Um, one last question I had for you in terms of children's dystocia and epidurals, because epidurals are so common, um, that when I was reading your work, you talked about when there's an epidural, you have to work more, like not the person giving birth necessarily, but like the whole team and be more proactive. Um, yes. Tell me more about that, because birthing people need to know this. Okay, so in, um, in my early career, having a woman with an epidural was a bit of a, okay, now I just need to kind of kick back, make sure all the obs are normal, keep an eye on all the kind of medical stuff and we'll all just chill uh, until the end. Um, you know, the woman's not requiring a lot of emotional support anymore, etc. However, um, a woman who has had an epidural, you've now done a number of things to her body physiologically, which she might actually want. You know, she might have been in labor for hours and hours and just need to rest, you know, just need to actually relax for a bit before getting back into it. And that's great. But what um, an epidural do, does is relax the pelvic floor and the, the muscles in the pelvis that actually assist the baby to rotate, um, which can actually help. If you've got a woman who's very, very tense, that can actually help by relaxing. But what it does is takes away that pivot point for the baby as it comes through the pelvis to rotate into a, you know, a optimal position. So you're more likely to have a baby who is persistently OP, you know, back to back to back with mom or a baby who has a shoulder dystocia because they haven't had that opportunity to rotate themselves around um, so you've kind of increased the chance and the mother's not instinctively birthing now so her her connection to what's happening in her body has been taken out so as the care provider you now have to do that you have to do the movement um, because otherwise you've got a completely stationary pelvis and a baby who hasn't got the muscles to help the baby to pivot and rotate um, and you've got a baby who's con continuing to be compressed and descending through the pelvis without gravity and without movement so as a care provider or doula or birth support person um, you really need to help that woman's pelvis move and whether that's using um, you know a towel or shawl or rebozo to kind of um, get the pelvis just rocking if that's just getting the the mum to change position you know going okay so the last half hour you've just been in that position so let's roll you onto this side let's roll you onto the other side there are various ways of, of doing it but it really is the care provider's responsibility to to manage the medication that they've, they've provided and that involves providing the woman with what you've kind of taken out with that medication which is movement um, and helping the baby navigate through Mm -hmm. and, also, and it kind of brings us and at the point of birthing the baby you know there is no excuse to just stick with the flat on your back or semi-reclined pushing with an epidural a lot of women can squat the beds come you know you can do all kinds of amazing things with the, the beds nowadays to get women upright for that pushing phase and even lying on their side gives more space in the back of the pelvis than sitting on the back of the pelvis so there are ways to work with epidurals that you know, I think care providers need to take ownership of if we're going to be administering epidurals. Mm. I love that recommendation. And it makes total sense to me that even though, yeah, you have to still support physiology as much as you can mm. and, and give back some of what you've taken away, for sure. Mm. Love it. Rachel, 
if people want to follow what you're doing, connect with you, or buy your book, because you have a fabulous book that came out last year called Why Inductions Matter, and people should read that too. So if they want to do that, how can they How can they do it? Uh, you can get the book from any places that you can get books from, so Amazon, Book Depository, wherever. Um, and my blog is just Midwife Thinking, and I'm also on Facebook. Um, I don't do lots of blogs. What I do is I tend to, for example, with shoulder distortion, have a topic, and then I come back and update that blog as more research comes out or as things change. So I kind of update blogs regularly, but I don't necessarily write brand new ones a lot unless there's an issue that's really <laughs> riling me. Um, then I'll write something. Um, yeah, so that's the best way to find me, really. Mm, it's not the quantity, it's the quality, because it's super good quality in that blog. Midwife thinking. Love it. Rachel, thank you so very much for doing this today. Was there anything that we left out? Um, I don't think so, not from my perspective. But, you know, if there is, people can maybe message the midwife thinking Facebook. I've, they can send me a message and ask. <laughs> yes, keep the conversation going. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, Patreon member, benefits, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vivace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2019 by Adriana Lozada. <laughs>